As the United States continues to struggle to contain the coronavirus, the passing of grim milestones has become something of a twisted ritual. The nation just confirmed more than 150,000 deaths from COVID-19, and San Diego County has helped push that number upward. July has been the region's deadliest month, with at least 161 people dying from the disease. Let's get up to speed as to where we are in this pandemic. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Paul Sisson, you're the health reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune, and you've been following this pandemic from the beginning. Let's start with kind of the top-line information. Why are we seeing more deaths now than at any other time of this pandemic? Well, we've seen more, uh, you know, spread of cases in the community, uh, you know, and um, one thing that I've really seen in going into the hospitals over the last few months is that these... um, Folks who do end up in the hospital and do end up dying often spend a long time in the hospital, you know, maybe like a month, maybe two months, maybe more. Uh, so the length of stay is very long. So, uh, you, you know, some of these that, that we're seeing now might actually have gotten hospitalized two months ago. It's a mm-hmm. real kind of what they call a lagging effect. And when it comes to having information about deaths, uh, it seems readers always ask us for information that the county isn't willing to give us. Can you give us an explanation of what information we do have and what are some things that we don't know? Because I think establishing that kind of helps people understand why we report the way we do. Right. Um, You know, one of the big things we really wish we had was more information on these outbreaks. Uh, you know, I get a lot of emails and calls every day, uh, people wanting to know where exactly these outbreaks are. Uh, they want to know if they went to that restaurant. They want to know if they went to that gym. They want to know if they went to that salon. Uh, and the county has just been unwilling to uh, provide that information to the public. Um, they've said that they're protecting identities and, and that type of thing. Uh, I think the public feels like they have a pretty strong right to know. So, uh, you know, it's just a really... Um, fraught situation in terms of, you know, two different sides of the coin. I mean, I I can understand where the county's coming from. You know, these outbreaks are confusing. Uh, an outbreak is three or more people from different households in one location. Uh, but the truth is that they don't really know when, when they find three people who all tested positive for COVID and all visited the same location. That doesn't necessarily mean that those three people actually got infected in that location. You know, they might have all gotten infected in different places and just happened. There, there could be a coincidence, uh, you know. Uh, so I, I do understand how the county uh, feels about, you know, trying to offer some protection for these uh, locations that, you know, they don't have perfect certainty uh, that these infections actually occurred there. Um, in terms of other information that we, we have, you know, we, we know about hospitalizations. Uh, we know about cases. Um, one of the biggest issues with cases, of course, is, you know, they don't always get reported to the county immediately after the test uh, is conducted. So the county might not hear about a case for weeks uh, and, and suddenly it will appear in the daily counts and it will make make it look like we've had a lot of cases in a certain day when really what's happening is those cases are being reported that day and many of them track back to previous days, maybe weeks ago. Uh, so, you know, we at the paper try to look at a longer trend. We, we like the 14-day average that the county has been putting out of a positive rate. Uh, it kind of smooths things out a little bit and, and kind of acknowledges the fact that 
these daily case totals in and of themselves don't really tell us anything. Um, you know, and then deaths are the same way. Uh, you know, we get a death count every day. Um, and those deaths are never all from the previous day or the current day that they're announced. When you actually get the list and look down it, you'll see very clearly, oh gosh, this this 14 deaths that were announced yesterday actually were occurred, you know, on a range of dates from two days ago all the way up to a week and a half ago. So, uh, you know, we, we try as best we can to uh, tell people that that's what's going on and to help them understand that these numbers, though they're reported on a daily basis, often encompass a much wider uh, range of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like we're so used to getting information instantaneously about everything. While this pandemic, because it has such a long incubation period, it's impossible to get that information. So it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around the fact that what we're looking at numbers-wise is stuff that's happened in the past two, maybe three, hopefully not a month, but sometimes. And because of that, we kind of have to, you know, be much more, you know, careful when we make assumptions and stuff like that because the reality is much more complex than we know. Yeah, you're a numbers guy. You know this. Uh, you know, and when you're reporting some, on something daily, it becomes a bit of a horse race, and everybody's watching and everybody's paying attention. Everybody's waiting for that report to come out, and uh, you know, it's just, it's a kind of a mismatch in time. We we have a daily report talking about long-term trends that are building right before our eyes, and we all just need to be pretty savvy about what these numbers mean when they come out every day. Hmm. And one thing uh, relating to deaths that came out earlier this week was some reporting from the New York Times about how hospitals really struggled during the initial outbreak in the spring. And because many hospitals were understaffed, um, some deaths could have been prevented. So kind of knowing that, uh, how have our hospitals been holding up when it comes to giving care in San Diego? Can you contrast kind of the reality we're seeing here versus kind of the extremes that we heard in New York? Yeah, you know, I did some research on that a few, maybe a month ago. I was looking at the hospitalization rates in New York, and, and I had just kind of heard in the media, you know, New York's hospitals were overwhelmed uh, when they were at the peak of their of their surge in April, and and I, I found a good ProPublica story uh, by a guy I know, Charlie Ornstein, who kind of dissected it, and it wasn't really true that the hospitals in New York actually got overwhelmed. Most of them didn't. Um, the problem was that uh, intensive care units got, got filled up pretty quickly. They ended up having to put uh, folks in, in other uh, non-optimal locations, like, like waiting rooms. Um, you know, so I, I think our hospitals here in San Diego, you know, I, I know for a fact that they were watching all of this uh, go down in New York. Uh, they were very much um, paying attention to that and very much um, trying to learn as much as they can about, you know, what to do. And I, I think what we've seen here that, that has really helped is we've seen a lot of transfers. We've seen hospital systems like sharper scripts that have four or five different hospitals in the county. And, you know, like when the when the hospitals down in Chula Vista started to get filled up, uh, they were immediately transferring and bringing all kinds of patients up to their northern facilities. Same thing happened in Imperial County. You saw, you know, some significant uh, inundation uh, in, in Imperial County hospitals. And very quickly, uh, you saw hospitals in San Diego and all over the state transferring patients out. So I think that's probably the biggest Thing that they've learned is, you know, you, I think there's probably a tendency with hospitals to, you know, when somebody comes through your door to see them as your patient and somebody that needs to stay with you and, and you need to care for. Um, but I think that, that the hospitals out here have learned that, you know, it's important to just 
get those transfers moving uh, sooner rather than later and don't don't let it overwhelm. I think that's what happened in New York is you had some hospitals that very much did become overwhelmed and you look at the numbers and you think why why weren't they transferring a lot of those patients to other places? And I don't, I don't know all of the mechanics in New York. I don't know. There might, there might be a very good reason why they weren't. Uh, but but certainly, I think here, uh, transfers have been a big a big part of it. They've also learned more about how to treat these patients when they are uh, in the hospital, you know, in terms of uh, controlling uh, lung inflammation and things that tend to put people on a ventilator. There was an early tendency to put people on a ventilator really quickly. Uh, you know, just uh, so that they could do it in a controlled manner. If you wait for somebody to really start to crash, then then you're doing you're putting a ventilator in, you know, putting a breathing tube in somebody in an emergency, and that's it's easier to make mistakes. It's easier to have stuff flying all over the place and have people get infected. So I think they've learned uh, a lot about when to ventilate, how to ventilate. Um, they've also got some new drugs that are you know now starting to really help uh, remdesivir. Is, is a drug that uh, really is showing some pretty good clinical trial results in terms of helping them control this cytokine storm that's happening in people's lungs. Uh, so I think, um, you know, I don't know that it's local hospitals that have learned necessarily uh, on that so much as it is, um, you know, the entire industry. Mm-hmm. And it does seem like this pandemic is just preying on the multiple inequities in American society. We're seeing disproportionate uh, number of cases and deaths among the Latino community. And you have some leaders in minority communities kind of asking the county to do more. Uh, One of those leaders speaking out is Shane Harris. Why don't you explain what is he asking the county to do? Yeah, I I think he just wants a little more clarity on exactly what is going on, why it is that we're seeing certain uh, communities and certain zip codes continue week after week, month after month to have high numbers of cases, high numbers of deaths. Uh, you know, if this is happening in your community, you want to know. And and, uh, and Mr. Harris uh, seems to me like a guy who's very uh, passionate about, about the communities that he serves. Um, and so he would like to know a little bit more, you know, back to the numbers thing. Uh, we know the county has been doing a good job, I'd say, of putting out numbers every single day of the um, percentage of people in each uh, demographic category that are testing positive or dying uh, from COVID-19. Um, but he has pointed out that one thing we don't, we still don't know is, well, what is the percentage of those demographics for people who have just been tested? You know, what, what he would like to know is in these demographic categories that are being hit, are they actually getting tested as frequently as other uh, demographics might be. Is the, is the testing that's being offered, is the increase in testing that's been tried to be pushed uh, down into the South Bay actually resulting in more people in these communities getting tested as a percentage? Are they getting tested at, at a rate that is representative of their makeup of the overall uh, communities that they're in? Uh, and, and I don't, I think that seems like a pretty smart thing to, to ask for. It seems mm-hmm. like something that we could know and the county just said to me yesterday that, they, that they're working on it and we should have that out pretty soon. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does make sense because the more affluent you are, the easier it is to you know find medical care and get tested. And certainly in the beginning, uh, there was a lot more testing available in North County than it was in South County, which now we're seeing with the numbers, the outbreak is much more intense pretty much anywhere south of the eight. So you really need to not only have more testing available down there, but also work extra hard to make sure you're connecting to the people that need it who may not be accessible through traditional means. Yeah, that's right. That's one thing that Mr. Harris was talking about that uh, I didn't quite get into today's story, but, you know, he he made a good point about working with the organizations that are 
in that given community and trust it. You know, a lot of this is about trust. A lot of this is about actually answering the phone when that contact tracer calls you or when that case investigator calls you. Uh, you know, it's about knowing what resources are available to you. And you might be more willing to listen to somebody tell you about those resources if you trust them. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think that there's some interesting um, exploration uh, to be done uh, to kind of try to get a little deeper on, on what is going on in these places where we are still continuing to see higher rates. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, San Diego County went into something of a second shutdown earlier this month. Um, is there now enough time to kind of judge uh, how well that's contained the outbreak? Or are we still kind of seeing the lag of cases that occurred during the so-called reopening period in June? Uh, are we able to kind of judge that metric yet? I think we can start to see it a little bit. I think it's been about three weeks since they told the restaurants and bars and others uh, that they needed to move outside, stop serving people indoors. Um, so, you know, uh, the suspected incubation rate of, of this virus is about two weeks. So we're about three weeks, headed, headed toward four weeks since that uh, that decision was made. So, yeah, I think you can start to see in the numbers. Um, you know, there's certainly not – we're not seeing a, a massive spike in – we're not seeing that 14-day – rate continue to climb. We're seeing it kind of hover around 6%. And, and so that, I think most statisticians would say that's an indication that you probably have brought it to a level state, rather than you, you probably have stopped it from continuing to climb. Uh, the, the desire is to make it drop. You know, uh, the, the governor's uh, the governor has six different measures that put us on his watch list and force us to continue in this mode of operation where most things are operating outside. Uh, the one that we violated here in San Diego is the number of uh, positive cases per 100,000 residents. And the threshold there is 100. I think last I looked that we were at like 150 or something. Uh, so you, you need to make that, that rate come down. Uh, and so that is, that is kind of the question that is on everybody's mind, you know. When would we expect that rate to come down? Uh, you know, we've, we've still got a lot of activity out there in the community. People are still, you know, we saw a really big beach gathering over the weekend. So, you know, there's still a lot of uh, people congregating. And, uh, you know, and that's understandable. People are tired of being in their houses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, throughout this pandemic, our, the methods that we use to decide how to deal with risk have changed in which something that you do now you may have not have thought about doing in the beginning of the outbreak when it seemed much more terrifying. It's a kind of frightening how the human mind gets used to a deadly virus in a matter of months. Yeah, and I, I think we've been saying for a while, and you and when you and I have talked in, in the last few weeks and months, you look out the window, you don't see COVID going by. You know, it's pretty invisible uh, disease. Um, you know, when people get sick, they stay in their homes or they go to the hospital, and uh, you know. Visitors are still not allowed in hospitals. So, uh, you know, it's not like anybody's family is getting to go to their bedside and sit with them and hold their hand and take that story back to their families. So this has been a very strange um, outbreak in, in the fact that it's the most severe consequences have been largely invisible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in many ways, this pandemic has really brought out uh, America's worst tendencies, uh, be it individualism or mistrust of science. And I imagine health officials are uh, really struggling dealing with that. Um, when you speak to them, you know, on a daily basis, what are you hearing from them about how 
they're struggling to communicate the severity of this outbreak while seeing us just try to America ourselves out of this problem. You know, there's a fair amount of frustration out there. Um, you know, these folks who, who take care of us, they, um, they have their own families and they're getting tired. I mean, they've been grinding on this thing since February and, uh, you know, it is just not easy to do this work, putting on and taking off all this protective gear, wearing a mask for your entire shift week after week after month after month. You know, it's, it's just a grind. And um, I think they just feel kind of resigned. Like this is, um, you know, I, I think there's a, a fair amount of just shock and disbelief, but I think it's also just kind of a resignation at this point that it's going to be what it's going to be and that we're going to do what we can and hopefully, uh, you know, things won't get out of control. It's been really interesting uh, over the last three or four weeks that we haven't seen the hospital rate really increase too much. I mean, it's been manageable. I mean, I say this as a guy who's not on the front lines and not charged with taking care of people, so I'm sure it doesn't feel as manageable if you're doing this work and you have been for months, but we haven't seen the same spike in hospitalizations that we've seen in cases. So uh, that's really heartening, and, you know, it's good to see that, uh, you know, if, if you've got, you know, generally they have about three or 4,000 people in hospital beds across this county and uh, four or 500, uh, you know, um, uh, COVID patients, so... It's not like we've seen the number of hospitalizations start crowding out other types of people who need care. And that's that's really good and, and probably a little unexpected. I, I think they expected a little more increase in hospitalizations than they ended up getting. Mm-hmm. And when you consider the situation in San Diego specifically, are there any glimmers of hope or, or good news that is, you know, among the pandemic, which is terrible? <laughs> glimmers of, of hope and good yeah i mean i think i think like we said you know the the rates are the the, the numbers aren't just spiking out of control here they, they seem to have reached a kind of a new plateau and that plateau has been relatively manageable for for the people you know sadly people are still dying every day and um so you know that is obviously a very negative that we need to acknowledge but but it it, it, it gives you a feeling like the majority of people, you know, though, though those who are running around without masks on and just doing what they want are getting all the attention on television, it, it does feel like probably a, a good proportion of the people who live here are taking this pretty st- seriously still, uh, you know, and um, I, I guess that that is a, you know, and, and you see you see plenty of uh, small acts of kindness, you know, you see people coming in and, and bringing food to, to healthcare workers, you see uh, neighbors helping each other out. You know, there, there's uh, a lot, a lot of, um, I think in, in a lot of ways, this really has drawn our community closer. Uh, in neighborhoods, maybe not with strangers at Starbucks, but, but at least, you know, I, I feel like neighbors are, are working hard to help each other out. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, if uh, I'm a reader or I want to get a hold of you, ask a question and make sure you're able to, you know, pass this question on to Dr. Eric Donald or Wilma Wooten, what's the best way of sending a message to you? Um, you know, email works. Uh, I, I get a lot, <laughs> get a lot of emails. So uh, if I if I miss your email, please forgive me. Uh, uh, but that's probably one of the better ways. Um, Twitter is fine as well. If you want to tweet tweet at me uh you know we, we uh go back and forth on there a little bit um uh but yeah email or twitter are generally uh generally the good ways uh, to go i'm paul sisson on twitter and uh, paul sisson at uh, sd union tribune on, on the email
Mm-hmm. All right. Paul Sisson, thank you so much. In other news, San Diego County is taking a more aggressive stance in enforcing its public health orders relating to the pandemic. Effective tomorrow, employers who have an outbreak at their business must inform their staff of the outbreak. The county will provide the language the businesses must use to communicate the outbreak. Additionally, the county is going to ramp up enforcement of egregious violations of the health order, as well as continuing to investigate outbreaks at businesses. The county will also create a new hotline for people to report when there are public health violations. The county will partner with cities on specifics of enforcement. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. As developments are coming in the world of baseball, our San Diego Padres podcast, Hot Lava, is back. Kevin A.C. and Jay Posner discuss the start of the MLB season, the Padres roster, and the challenges ahead for everyone in baseball. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is made possible by subscribers to the San Diego Union Tribune. As we live through this momentous time in history, the truth and facts matter. If you are not yet a subscriber, please go to uniontrip.com slash subscribe. Until next time.